thank you all for, uh, for being here. Um, well, first thing, uh, admitting something. I rushed out of my hotel room and left my speech in the hotel. So there are no slides, there are no nothing. We're going to try this extemporaneously, so um, please bear with me. And uh, if it gets really boring, just let me know, and we'll, we'll do something different. But, um, when I was in San Francisco, let me go back to that, um, I had an amazing opportunity. I worked for Gavin Newsom, who was then the mayor of San Francisco. And he became lieutenant governor of California. And I was the first real identified CIO for the city, chief information officer. And I had this opportunity to actually do whatever I wanted because he actually said, Chris, fail. Fail forward as many times. I don't care what you do. Just don't do things the same way because the same way doesn't work. And that was incredibly freeing. And boy, I failed many, many times. And actually, because I'm from California and Silicon Valley, that kind of becomes the badge of honor. And, and I say that I was lucky because that doesn't happen very often. And really, that's where I began to come up with this concept of this global kind of um, sensing network of people working and using tools like open government, open data, open innovation, open development to, to our uh, advantage. So this is my dream in San Francisco. My dream was, what would we accomplish if we could actually get rid of distinctions between government agencies, all of those silos, and you could actually get rid of the lines between local government, and, and this is the United States, and city and state and federal and international. If you could get rid of all of that and just put it all together, what could we actually solve if we were able to do that? And I didn't have a very good answer then. All I knew was that I had this incredibly rich government. I had the incredibly rich private sector, Google, Facebook, Twitter. And I had an incredibly active group of citizen hackers and citizen activists. And when I looked at all of that, what was kind of the sweet spot of activity? Kind of go forward to the White House. And what I probably think I accomplished most, or most effectively at the White House, was the creation of cities.data.gov, counties.data.gov, states.data.gov, mapping that into the federal government data.gov, and then creating the open source version on the international scale of open um, GPL. And what that represents to me is actually accomplishing what Tim Riley said when government could be a platform. Because what we've actually now done is created the ability to separate or get rid of those silos and those levels of government. And for the first time in the United States anyway, we have one common platform and one ability to do the incredible work of making government more efficient, economic growth, job creation, whatever it may be. So um, that's kind of an introduction into who I am and what I'm about. And I think that just to tell the last story about me, um, I left the White House on the 10th of December and did my usual checkout and gave up my badge and did all of that. 
and went into the World Bank and checked in. And at four o'clock that day, I found myself on my way to Moscow. Never been to Moscow, never been to Russia, but I was going. And uh, two days later, I'm in a big conference room, uh, actually a conference center, and I am teaching two master's classes to government officials in Russia at the federal and local levels on how to do open government. And at the end of the day, I knew that I was going to be on stage with Prime Minister Medvedev. But usually those guys just kind of come in and out of these things and they don't really stay. So I wasn't really concerned about what I was going to say. About an hour before our showtime, the MC comes up to me and says, Chris, I was just on the phone with the Prime Minister and he really doesn't want a boring session. He wants it to be controversial. So he wants you to go first, and then whatever you say, the prime minister is going to react to. And I'm like, okay. And he said, so he wants you to do is criticize the Russian approach to open government, and specifically lay out your criticism of their plan, so that he can then react to that, and you can have and a discussion, a heated discussion back and forth on what you think they should be doing differently. I looked at him and thought, you gotta be kidding. I'm a former White House official, whatever that means. It's my third day in the job at the World Bank and you know, is the Russian mafia or somebody gonna be waiting for me outside? Because I'm on stage with, you know, the whole range of people in there, Moscow and whatever. And I'm looking at him going, many words were in my life. And he said, no, 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 you have to do this. You have to do this. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I very quickly um, figured out, apparently I looked quite stressed. But I, I spent the next hour trying to figure out what I was gonna do. And I ended up um, organizing all of the thoughts that I'd heard from the Russian officials during those two master classes. And organized it in such a way that I embedded best practices, international best practices, and then used their own criticism back to the Prime Minister and basically laid that out. So it wasn't my criticism, it was actually criticism of the Russian people to their government. And it was a bit of a cop-out, it was a bit of an um, uh, easy way out, but I will tell you, I, I wouldn't necessarily do it the same way now. But at the time, it made sense, and I think he was a little disappointed but he, uh, he understood, and so we ended up having a two-hour conversation about open government and open data on stage. And it must have been interesting enough because the next day a Russian TV station came and said, Chris, we want you to replicate the whole thing on TV tonight. And I said, okay. And they said, uh, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take you into a studio and we're gonna take you for five hours. And then we're gonna cut and paste them that five hours to create the segment. And I'm going to my comp person saying, do you really think that's a good idea? And she said, oh, sure, 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 sure. Just, you know, stay away from anything controversial. So if anybody has ever been to Moscow, the traffic in Moscow is worse than any city I've ever seen. And luckily for me, that night was particularly bad because I ended up um, not getting to the uh, studio except about 30 minutes before showtime. So there wasn't time to do it. We had to do it live. And so they would ask me questions, we're going to film it, and it was going to be shown. And so I'm 
sitting in the green room while they do the hair and the makeup, and I'm watching the TV screen of what is being shown right before I go on, and they are ripping the United States apart about waterboarding and torture and Guantanamo Bay and lying and all of this stuff, and suddenly I realized, you know, here I am going to be going on again in this kind of situation where there's an expectation that I'm going to have to uh, atone for the sins of the world, specifically in open government and open data, and um, I was worried. But luckily, I walked in, and we had uh, about 15 minutes of question and answer. We did it, boom, 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 and I was done. I didn't think much more about it until I was in San Francisco, and San Francisco, as many of you may know, actually has five official languages, and one of them is Russian. And the guard at the front desk of the office where I worked came up to me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean, I'm, what am I doing here? He said, no, I saw you on Russian TV. You're supposed to be fixing Moscow. You're supposed to be helping with open government and building their open data system. And I'm like, you got all of that from this one segment? He said, oh yeah, I, I understand open data is really important. So, the point of all of that is that the world is watching. They do understand this. And they want to help. And so, with that said, I know you've had lots and lots of speakers and a lot of people who come in and talked about um, different aspects. But I think, back to my introduction, one of the things that I'm actually doing is kind of looking, looking down. I don't mean that parentally. Looking down at what's happening in the world when it comes to openness, and whether that be open innovation, open data, open government, open development, and really looking at what's happening and trying to get a feel for how to move forward, and how to move forward in a reasonable way rather than, in my opinion, the nice to do but not particularly effective way, which is a thousand flowers blooming. So I know that you um, know these probably um, trends and statistics better than I do, but the whole point of the Internet of Things. When you, when you look at the Internet of Things or think about it, and you think that by 2020 there will be 50 billion connections of people, places, and things. And you look at the fact that we're all moving mobile, and that mobile, the growth in mobile markets will be most in Africa and Asia, the developing world. You look at the fact that everything is social, and the fact that now with big data and analytics, you're able to take different data sets and mash them together to predict behavior. And suddenly what you've got is the development or the beginnings of a development of a worldwide consciousness, a network consciousness that is starting to form. So that's kind of the first thing to say. The second thing is that while that is going on, the average world citizen, much more knowledgeable, much more impatient, much more networked, and much more willing to take 
on and do things on their own. They're not the traditional type of person who waits to be told what to do. Third, the result of all of this is a much more activistic set of people who are willing to take things in their own hands and cause change to happen. Now that may sound pretty exciting to us in this room, but I can tell you it's very threatening to a lot of people. And so organizations like the World Bank, where I work, we have a wonderful opportunity to help shape this and shape the conversation because in many senses, we are the banker to the developing world. So I'll stop there and I'm gonna move over here and say, does anybody really know what the bank does or what it's about? Has anybody ever? Okay. I didn't, quite frankly, before I went to the bank. So let me tell you about the bank. The bank is actually, it's the World Bank Group. There are five individual banks in the bank group. The bank itself was the bank that was created to rebuild Europe after World War II. And once that was done, it had to reinvent itself. And so it is the worldwide institution whose single goal is to eradicate poverty. And the World Bank itself and another organization have uh, about 10,000 employees. And I think a portfolio, and I have to look up my notes, the home is this, but something like $50 billion. It's a huge organization. And it has two parts. One is a knowledge network, a sustainable development network, for example. And then it divides the world up into six regions. And all of our work actually happens in those regions. And we have three products. We loan money to developing countries. We provide advisory assistance. And we provide this kind of catch-all for other things. In many cases, a country's sole source of income is the World Bank. In many cases, we are a very big contributor to loans, to actually helping them solve a particular issue, or we consult and tell them how to do open data. So that's kind of the role of the bank. My job at the bank is actually to develop a technology strategy across all five parts of the bank, first. Second, I'm supposed to be basically the selling person with ministers, like Medvedev. And lastly, a knowledge expert on things like open government, open data, whatever. So I think that's why I've been invited to talk to you today is because that's what I do. So with that said, I'm gonna tell you about one more thing and then I wanna open up a conversation with you because I actually have a reason to be here besides to talk with you. I need to hear from you. If you look at what my products and services are at the bank, they are three things. One is knowledge, second is tools, and third is disruption. Now the bank doesn't call it disruption, I'm telling you, that's what I call it. So the first is knowledge. How do we actually take all of those best practices and share them? 
One of the ways that we're doing it, if you've ever heard of Code for America, is to take the lessons for code from Code for America and see if they translate outside of America. Because I'm not sh necessarily sure they do in its current form. And is the code for Africa, the code for Europe, the code for the world, a model that will actually work to take kind of the testing of great ideas and the scaling them and the knowledge platform that exists? Is that something that is a model that should be replicated? So that's kind of in the, an example of knowledge. In tools, um, we have tools like eGov, I mean, kind of basic stuff. But we have even more basic stuff in that in many parts of the world, the developing world, there is no infrastructure, i.e. there is no broadband or cell coverage. What do you do in situations where you don't have the things that we, electricity, that we take for granted? How do you actually engender innovation when you don't have those basic tools? And what we're trying to do is build out as much of that infrastructure as possible. Two examples in Africa, um, there are large parts of Africa that had no connection to the internet at all. So what we did is through a loan program, actually lay cable on the eastern side of Africa and connect countries to it. On the western side, there was already a transatlantic cable, and we just worked to connect countries to it. And what that was, we were able to do is reduce the cost, raise access, and watch the market grow. So that's the kind of stuff we do. Or in Ghana, actually redoing the process that the Ghana government has set up for business registration, and using that as a way to engender um, development within the market. And then the last is actually this disruption. And a safe example of disruption, because I don't think we do enough disrupting, but a safe example is a sanitation hackathon that we did in Africa, where rather than the outcome being simply an app that was developed, the process of the hackathon itself was the product. Because what we're finding is people don't even know the problems they're trying to solve. And so through a multi-step hackathon, we were able to get those very concrete problem statements and get knowledge where it didn't exist in order to solve the problem. So like I said, it's a minor disruption issue. So I am about to undertake some projects in countries such as Rwanda. And my question to you is this. Rwanda is an incredibly amazing country. It has amazing people who really care about it and who want to make it a better place. And they hear what you guys are doing. They hear Open Data Institute and they want their own. They hear Open Data and they want to release it. They're able to actually get some traction going. But in a case when you don't have basic infrastructure, how do you actually make this work? And so my question to you really is, how do we how do we do that? How do we find those pockets of innovation? How do we work with those people and systems to create value? And then how do we use that and the resulting stories to actually get um, more acceptance within Rwanda and then start building out in Africa? And I, I am truly interested in thoughts that you might have.
So I f open up the floor. Anybody have any ideas? Yes. Okay. I mean, you know, it's, it's the traditional and usual suspects. I don't know that it's any different in Rwanda from any other country. So it would be anybody who has a vested interest in the status quo, whether that be government officials, business officials, civil society. I mean, it would be anybody who just doesn't you know, want to do that. Now, I, I will tell you that, again, being an American, I fall back to my American stories. So we talk about GPS. We talk about the weather data and all of that. But I think the other issue here is, what stories do you guys have of the utility, usefulness, impact of open data that you think could be told in order to change the mindsets of whomever has a vested interest in the status quo in a country like Rwanda? So, does anybody have any stories? <laughs> 